0: Well, I debated this week whether to uh, just bring the book of Philippians, our time in Philippians, to an end this week, and, and then as I looked at the, uh, the closing verses, the closing uh, passage in the book of Philippians chapter 4, it just became evident that, that Paul is, is in many ways concluding a, a thought, uh, in many ways concluding the book uh, with verses 19 and 20, and then giving that final benediction uh, in the, the last remaining verses. And so next week, Lord willing, uh, we will... We will finish out uh, the book of Philippians, and so this is the, the penultimate uh, sermon in the book, uh, by God's grace, uh, uh, you know, according to His will, of course. Uh, that's, that's the plan as it stands now. So this morning we are considering verses 19 and 20 of chapter 4 of the book of Philippians, this letter uh, to the church at Philippi, uh, Philippians 4, 19 and 20. Uh, first, before we get there, I want to read to you from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Uh, that's our scripture reading today, a supporting passage. of so Matthew six, twenty-five to thirty-four is our scripture reading. Our sermon passage is Philippians four, nineteen and twenty. Brothers and sisters, this is the very word of God. If you wish to hear God speaking to you, pay attention. Because He is. He speaks through His Word. This is His Word. Listen to it. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now turning to Philippians 4:19 and 20. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you that your word is truth. It is the truth. It is absolute and objective truth. It is inerrant and infallible. And it is applicable to our lives. It governs what we do, it governs what we say, it governs how we think. And so we pray, dear Lord, that you, by the power of your Spirit, would bring us into greater conformity to your Word. We pray, O Lord, that you would continue this work of perfecting us through the reading and the preaching of your Word, by the power of your Spirit. We pray, dear Lord, that you would teach us what it means both to be needy, but also, Lord, what it means to have our needs supplied. We pray now for your blessing upon your word as it is preached. Bless those who hear, bless the one who preaches, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now you will likely remember that in last week's sermon passage, Paul tells the Philippians that he is well supplied. And you remember that, that we saw that, that Paul was very—he was gently trying to tell his Philippian brothers and sisters, you've done enough. You have given to me sacrificially. You, you have given until it hurts. God has used you to supply my needs. It's okay. You don't have to send me anymore. He s- describes there... They're giving to him as, as a sacrifice. He describes it in the terms of, of, of Old Testament sacrifices. He, he says that their gifts to him were a fragrant offering, a sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And he knows that their, that their gift, it required an actual sacrifice on their part. They'd given out of, of their need. They weren't flush with, with resources. It Struggled financially, and so Paul appreciates their economic situation. He's thankful for the way that the Lord has, has drawn them, has led them to, to give to him. But he, he's telling them gently, you've given enough. And now he tells them, at least in part because he knows this, that God will supply their every need. He, he, he tells them this because he knows that they are needy. And yet what we're going to find is that, God, that Paul here is speaking of more simply than their physical needs. He's speaking more than simply their financial needs. He's speaking uh, of more than that. Now, now based upon Paul's previous two uses of the word need in this letter, he only uses the word three times in the letter, and the previous two uses, based upon that, it would be easy to understand Paul to be speaking of God supplying only their physical needs. He's only talking about physical needs here. We look to the book of Philippians, we look to these few instances of the way that Paul has used the word needs, We, we would assume easily and justifiably that that's what Paul means. Again, we we know that the Philippians had been in financial dire straits. They know what it's like to be in physical need, material need. And yet, there is enough evidence in the letter as a whole, and even in our passage this morning, as we consider uh, phrases, words, and then compare those to other passages in Scripture, there is enough evidence to conclude that Paul is referring, referring to more than God only providing for their physical needs. And so we'll get to that in due time. The first time that Paul uses the word "need" in Philippians is in chapter two, verse 25. You may well remember that he writes in that verse, "I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need." Now we know that Epaphroditus, he, he brought messages to, to Paul. He also brought this, this gift, this financial, this monetary gift, to Paul. And so Paul here, he's speaking of the, the material need that he had that Epaphroditus helped to supply. Uh, in the context of four, chapter 4 verse 16 he, he writes there even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once and again And, and so again the second use of the word uh, need uh, in the book it, it would indicate physical material needs so in each of these uses of the word need in the letter Paul is referring to his own needs and how the Philippians have helped to provide for those needs Paul most likely had in mind his physical needs when he wrote those two verses. So Paul's first use, the first two uses of the word need in in 2.25 and 4.16, they could easily, and I think rightfully be understood to govern Paul's third and final use of the word in chapter 4, verse 19. But what Paul says in the second half of verse 19 shows us that he is referring to needs beyond physical ones. So what does Paul say there in verse 19? He says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So now Paul is talking not about his needs, but about the Philippians needs, which again, you take his first two uses as well. The Philippians are in physical need. They're in financial need. God's going to supply for that. He's going to provide for that. But but before we get to to all of this, you might be wondering, why is it so important to establish that that Paul is speaking of more than physical needs here? that he's also talking about spiritual needs in verse 19. Well, for starters, if Paul is only referring to the Philippians' physical needs, then what are the implications of that? Think about that. If he's only referring to uh, the, the financial situation, the dire straits that they are in financially, physically then what Paul is saying is that out of the abundance of God, God's riches, he's going to supply, he's going to provide for those needs. And, and, and some people have taken this passage to, to, in a very, very much of a prosperity gospel way. Well, God is going to, he's going to just shower down abundant material, monetary blessings upon you. Now, that's one implication of, of taking it only that, that Paul is referring to physical material needs here. As one commentator on this passage put it, in New Testament terms, a physical need would be food, clothing, and protection from the elements. Wants are not needs. So in that sense, Paul isn't promising that God is going to make them filthy rich. So that would serve as an answer to the prosperity preachers. God's not promising to make them filthy rich. All Paul is saying here is that God will supply for their, those basic needs of life, food, clothing, shelter. That's it. That, that, that's the New Testament understanding of what our true needs are, our basic physical needs are. But in our day, we have a shifting sense of what our needs are, don't we? We don't necessarily have a New Testament understanding of what a true need is. We've got to have our internet. We've got to have our smartphones. We've got to have our televisions and our cars. And, and, and we understand that much of our infrastructure is based upon the availability, the ready availability of electricity. And so we think that we can't do without electricity. We know that some people in, in hospitals or, 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 or long-term care facilities, that they, it would be very bad for them to lose electricity because their life depends upon uh, equipment and machines that, that, that provide for them uh, uh, using electricity. But in the, in the large picture, we, we don't need those things. We don't absolutely need them. Um, many things that ought to be considered luxuries in our day and age are thought of as needs. And that's why we, we spend some time here talking about what our true needs are. But additionally, Paul has just told the Philippians earlier, just a few verses earlier in chapter 4, that whether he is facing hunger and deprivation or abundance, he has learned to be content. He's content. Paul has said, whether I am in, in lack of, lacking food, don't know where my, my next meal is going to come from, I am content. And so for Paul, even when he's in need, he's not in need. Even when he's in need, things aren't desperate. He's learned to be content. He, he's learned by God's grace, by, in God's school of instruction, he's learned how to be content and not to be anxious. Even if he's on a ship in a stormy sea and thrown overboard, he's learned how to be content. So to think of an abundance of provisions as a need, I've got to have a certain amount of food in the storehouse to make sure I can make it through. Uh, to think of it that as an absolute necessity is setting yourself up to be discontented when the provisions in the cupboard get a little low. What are your basic needs? Paul understands that there's a difference between privation, scarcity, and a complete lack of provision. So the temptation for us when we read a passage like this is to think that God has, has failed to keep this promise when we don't have all of those things that we're used to having that we've convinced ourselves that we need to have. That's the danger when we read a passage like this solely with material needs in mind. If Paul's promise that God will supply the Philippians every need refers only to their physical needs, then what he means is that God will provide the basics that they need to get by. If that's what he means by this, then that's all he means by this. They're going to have the staples, the basics. They don't need the luxuries, the comforts. So at least this is what Paul is referring to. However, Paul goes on to say that the supply of their every need takes place according to God's riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And that's the second half of verse 19 there. The way that God supplies our needs is out of His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So what does Paul mean by that? Well, you've no doubt heard quoted from Psalm 50 where God declares that He owns the cattle on a thousand hills You've heard that that verse quoted, and most often that is quoted to show that there is no shortage with God. His provision for our needs is abundant. And so it would appear that that's what what Paul is getting at in the second half of verse 19. God supplies the Philippians and our needs out of the abundance of his riches, meaning his material wealth all of the cattle that he has, all of the livestock that he owns, all all of the land that belongs to him, because indeed everything in this universe is God's. It belongs to him. And out of that abundance of natural resources, he supplies our needs. However, of the 21 times that the noun... Plutos, the Greek word that is translated riches in our passage, occurs in the New Testament. 14 of those 21 times. So two-thirds of those 21 times, it's in Paul's letters. Seven other times. Three times in the Gospels, a couple of times in the book of Revelation, once in the book of Hebrews. And in every case but two. So in 12 of the 14 times that Paul uses this word Plutos, Plutos, uh, in every case but two, uh, which don't refer to the riches of God, there's two times that Paul uses it that they don't refer to the riches of God, Paul uses it to refer not to earthly riches that God has, not to material riches that God has, but what? To spiritual riches that God has. The, the two times that he refers to earthly riches, he's not talking about God's riches. He's talking about riches that humans possess. So, for instance, in Romans chapter two, verse four, Paul writes, "Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance?" That is a that is a spiritual riches that Paul is talking about: his forbearance, his patience, his kindness. Romans 11 verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! He's not talking about material riches there. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, he writes, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Again, there's no way to construe that as Paul talking about God's material possessions. Colossians one verse twenty seven says to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you the hope of glory. Those, those are only four uses out of twelve, and in each of those it's a, it's a sampling of the way that Paul uses this word to refer to God's wealth, His riches, and in none of those, and indeed in the other twelve, or the other or rather eight, God is not referring to material wealth. Paul is not referring to material wealth on the part of God. He never uses the word to refer to God's material wealth at all in the 14 uses. Never in a cattle on a thousand hills kind of way. He always refers to God's riches in a spiritual sense. Always. So if it is out of those spiritual riches that the needs of the Philippians are supplied, Paul most likely is referring to spiritual needs. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't provide for the physical needs of His creatures. That is a given. That's found throughout Scripture. Psalm 104, which we sang from in our opening hymn today, talks about the the physical provision that God gives to His creatures. He cares for us. That's, That's part of God's work of providence that's ongoing. He provides also, though, for the the spiritual needs of his people, his church, in a very special way, out of the abundance of his spiritual storehouse. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not using this passage to put down people's physical needs or to relegate to a minor status, the physical needs that people have, but I do think that it is important to emphasize to people that their spiritual needs are very important too, even in the passage from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, which we read just before the sermon passage, Jesus is addressing there, even there, a spiritual issue. His disciples' anxiousness by telling them that God will take care of their physical needs. The anxiousness that arises out of this, you know, the lack of, 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 of provision, that's a spiritual reaction to, to a physical reality, he links their anxiety, Jesus does, over what they will eat and drink with a lack of faith. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not, not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? And one of the policies that, that we in this church, the officers of this church, strive to maintain with people who come to us for assistance, folks who are, who are coming to us from outside of the church, who don't worship with us, when well, they come to us and they ask for help, and, and this happens... Fairly regularly, and some of you, are, you see this happening. Uh, we tell them that they need to come to a worship service. We, we try to make that a pre- prerequisite to us giving them a, a financial gift, a monetary uh, assistance. And then what we tell them, if they call, we tell them, and then you meet with a deacon afterwards. Now, that doesn't always work out. I'll be honest, it doesn't always. People don't always call before they show up. People are pretty good at knowing the precise times that our worship services end. And that's when they show up asking for help. They they, they caught on to our little ruse, I suppose. Sometimes it's the precise time after the worship service that I'm about to head home. And that's when they show up. But no matter what, we give these people, at the very least, we give them a bag of food and supplies, we fill up their gas tank. Sometimes we'll try to get them some monetary assistance if, if, if we have any ability to do that. Oftentimes we, we don't have our, our, our deacon's not here. We don't have a, a checkbook for the deacon's fund. We, we try to help them out in some way or other, but we always tell them this. As important as your physical needs are, and they are important, and God cares for those physical needs, God doesn't want His creatures to starve to death. As important as those things are, your spiritual needs are even more important As much as your body needs to be fed and clothed, your soul needs to be fed. You need to be a part of God's people, a part of His body, a part of His church. You need to sit under the preaching of the teaching of the Word. You need to hear the gospel. You need to be a part of His. I've told people, if you join our church, if you become a part of our church, we will do everything we can to take care of you. And I mean that, and I know that we will. And so far, that, that plea with people has netted us all of, of zero. People <laughs> who have actually uh, come to us for need and then ended up with us. But we, we try. We try to impress upon them. To, to take it from what they know, which is this physical deprivation. The this, this serious need that they have for, for money or for food or, or whatever else. And apply it to their spiritual needs. And say, these are just as great. These are greater. As bad as your physical need may be, your spiritual need is even greater. The reason that it's important to emphasize the fact that Paul is at the very least speaking of spiritual needs here in addition to physical needs in this passage is because we humans put an emphasis, an outsized emphasis on our physical needs to the point where spiritual needs are almost completely obscured. We do this. We all do this. I do this. It's reflected in our prayers, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the, uh, the, those occasions which, which bring us to our knees in prayer. How often is it because of, of a spiritual concern? How often is, is it because someone that we know or we ourselves are in some kind of deep uh, physical need? We, our, our, our priority, the premium that we have, it's placed on physical suffering, physical need. But it's not just the suffering people who come to our need asking for help. We, we members here at Mid-Cities often forget our deep spiritual needs. We too preference our physical, our material needs over our spiritual ones. And so we forget because of this, because we're only thinking of our physical needs, we forget all of the ways that God has provided to ensure that those needs, our spiritual needs, are met. We grumble because we don't have enough, we think. We don't have what we want. And as a result of that forgetfulness, we we forget to thank God for His provision for our every spiritual need. Forgetfulness of our own spiritual needs begets forgetfulness of God's provision for those needs, which begets a failure fully uh, fully and properly to worship God. Now it does truly seem It seems to me to be evident that that in these last several verses, Paul is shifting from talking about physical needs, and and his physical needs in particular, with reference to the Philippians supplying those needs, to talking about the, the Philippians' spiritual needs. There has been a shift in verse 19. That does not mean, again for Paul, or ultimately for God, that our physical needs aren't important. But the priority of verse 19, we can say fairly confidently, is on the spiritual needs of the Philippians. That, predominantly, primarily, is what Paul is saying God will supply out of his spiritual wealth. So what does it mean that God will supply there, and and by extension, our needs? Well, if you look at a little further at the times that Paul uses the word riches in relation to God, we get a pretty good idea of what Paul has in mind. What are your spiritual needs that Paul is promising God is going to provide for? Well, again, looking at Romans 2.4, uh, Paul uses riches in reference to God's kindness, His forbearance, His patience. In order to provide for people spiritually, God exercises all of these things in order that He might lead us to repentance. In Romans 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, Paul writes, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So just from these three passages, we see that we have a need for repentance. We are not able to repent on our own. This is a gift from God. It is a need that, that human people, we, we have because we're sinners. And God supplies that need to us out of the riches of his abundance. We have have need of mercy. Out of the riches of God's abundance, he, He supplies mercy to us. We have need of His grace because we cannot do what He commands us to do in His law. He has to be gracious to us. We haven't deserved anything good from Him, the only thing that we deserve is His wrath. But we have been saved by grace through faith. Now this list is by no means exhaustive, but I think you get the idea here, just a taste of what our spiritual needs are, what God provides uh, to us out of the abundance of his riches. As we saw just a few moments ago, forgetfulness of our spiritual needs leads to forgetfulness of God's provision for those needs, which leads to a failure properly to worship God. But the opposite is true as well. When we remember our own need, especially our former needs that God has already provided for, such as regeneration, faith, repentance, justification, when we remember those things, and then we remember what God has done for us to provide for those great spiritual needs, it leads us where? To worship Him. And that's exactly what Paul does in verse 20. This is why we we, we can believe not only that that Paul, sure, he he may be including, generally speaking, physical needs, but he's talking about spiritual needs here. He's talking about theological truths. And that leads him to to worshiping God. In verse 20 he says, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now one commentator writes that this is an end both to this section... And to the letter as a whole. It is the appropriate response to his previous statements of God's lavish supply in his riches and glory. The appropriate response there being to God, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. In his commentary on Philippians, Gordon Fee writes, True theology is doxology. And doxology is always the proper response to God. If our doctrine, to put it in other words, if our doctrine of God, which is our theology, doesn't lead to worshiping God, which is doxology, then we've got a problem. There's something messed up with our theology, either the theology itself or our understanding of that theology. We don't understand what God has done for us. We don't understand who God is. If if our theology does not lead to our worshiping God, Paul describes God as our father in this this doxology here, this this acclamation of of praise and worship. In Rome at the time that that Paul was writing, again, he's writing at the time of of the notorious evil uh, emperor Nero. In Rome at that time, Caesar, another name for the emperor, he was considered to be the father of the empire. Caesar was termed father in Italy and Roman colony, colony cities and called the father of the fatherland. So, so Rome, uh, Paul is in prison. He's under house arrest in Rome. He's writing uh, to people in Philippi, which is a Roman province. Caesar is known in both of these places and throughout the empire as the father of the fatherlands. As we're going to see in next week's passage, Lord willing, some people who were part of Caesar's household whether that meant that they were family members of Caesar or they were in in service to Caesar, they were members of the Roman church. These Christians send their greetings to the Philippian believers. And with all of this in mind, this this type of of worship, the the use of this honorific title, Father, for for Nero of all people, Paul calls God our God and Father. Father. As Father of all those who belong to Christ, he is utterly sovereign over and protector, and importantly in this context, provider to the Philippians and all believers. That's what it means. Paul's rhetoric here, this language here, the way the term that he uses here, it flies in the face of Roman convention and conviction. Only God is their father. It is God, not Caesar, to whom the title of father truly belongs. Caesar might be able to provide for the physical needs of his people in a limited sense, and not all that well, but God is the ultimate provider. Caesar, again, Nero, he certainly showed preference to some of his citizens over others. He treated citizens who were Christians particularly badly. But all citizens of God's kingdom are showered with his blessings. All citizens of God's kingdom have his spiritual blessings poured out upon them, showered down uh, upon their heads like like oil, like anointing oil that David talks about in Psalm 23. And what's more, these blessings, these, these gifts, this inheritance, these riches, they can never be taken away. They can never be destroyed. They can never be withheld. God is not a despot like Nero was. He's never going to take out his, 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 because he's not crazy, he's never going to take out his, his crazy anger upon a particular subset of his people. God is faithful. He's consistent. He is steadfast. He is unmoving and unmoved. He is ultimately wise in all things. He's not whimsical or capricious in any way. We can count on him. We we, we know that he will keep his promises. In a primary sense then, with spiritual blessings commensurate with our spiritual needs and secondarily with physical blessings, Paul is saying, God is going to supply all of your needs. Primarily spiritual, secondarily physical. Physical. And this is because in Christ Jesus, we have redemption through His blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If God has given to you Christ Jesus, if you have Christ as your possession. If the Spirit of Jesus Christ dwells in your heart, then that is proof of the fact that God is going to give you everything that you need to exist in this life. All spiritual gifts belong to you. He will withhold none of them from you. Through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and by His and the Father sending the Holy Spirit to dwell within you, you have been given everything that you need. And your Father will provide for you now and throughout all eternity. You will know no deprivation. Not in the truest sense of that word, not in, in, in the ultimate sense of that word. You may know hardship. You might struggle. You might not know where the next meal is going to come from. But you can rest assured in this fact that God gives you everything that you most need. You will never suffer spiritual death or spiritual deprivation because you belong to God the Father. You are His child. And He most certainly cares for you. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank You that You care for us. We thank You that You provide for us. We thank you that you know our deepest needs. That you have a concern for those things that we care about. and are concerned about. We thank you, dear Lord, that you provide for needs that we don't even know we have. We thank you primarily, dear Lord, that you have drawn us out of spiritual death. That you've raised us to life. Causing us to be born again. To a new hope. We thank you, dear Lord, that you have blessed us with justification, with adoption, with faith, that you're blessing us even now with sanctification. We thank you, dear Lord, that we will enjoy glorification when we go to be with you for all eternity. We pray, dear Lord, that you would sustain us with this knowledge. We pray, O Lord, that we would seek to know you better and better. We pray that our theology would truly be doxology. That our understanding of you, that our knowledge of you, would cause us to worship you more and more. We pray, O Lord, that we would not be forgetful, but that we would always remember the wonderful blessings that you have showered down upon us that we would be thankful, that we would be worshipful. And we pray this all in the precious name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.